A special education teacher, an administrator, and a lawyer walk into a bar. And our conversations can get pretty lively. And now you'll join us while we talk all about special education and the public school system. I'm Robin Fabiano, a special education teacher and a building-based student services administrator. And I'm joined by Abby Hanscom, a district-level student services administrator, and Angela Smagula, a founding partner at Kahn and Smagula, specializing in educational law. We've been working together across multiple districts since 2009 and have lots of opinions about special education. In this podcast, we hope to share information, lessons learned, interviews of VIPs, and bring some humor to an otherwise serious topic. But before we get started, three disclaimers. One, the views shared on this podcast are our own and don't represent the views of the district in which we work. Two, Everyone might want Khan and Smagula as their attorneys, but Angela is not giving legal advice during this podcast. Three, although there are federal laws governing special education, we work in Massachusetts, a state that has extra protections, so some of what we speak about may not apply in your state. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. We have Abby Hanscom, Angela Smagula. And I'm Robin Fabiano, and we are talking today about big picture history of special education. And I was thinking that I would start off with a trivia question to see if you guys know the answer. So this should be easy since we're, we live in Massachusetts. But what was the first public school? Anyone? Drumroll. Dun, dun, dun. It was in 1635. All right. I'm going to tell you the Boston Latin school. First, so cool. First public school, which is pretty cool. And uh, it was a boys only public secondary school. Um, and then in 1639, the first taxpayer-supported public school was opened also in Massachusetts in Dorchester, the Mather School, and that's a current K-5 through school, um, and they have pretty rich histories. Did you guys know yeah. that? And what's pretty cool about that is the term taxpayer-funded, right? So your parents didn't have to pay a fee, and you didn't have to be the, you know, young, wealthy child that there was um, some access from some public construction of taxpayer dollars to fund school as early as 1639, which is amazing. But not for everybody, Robin. So we'll find out. And I think Mm -hmm. we already know. But I'm wondering if the K through five tax-free school was just elementary and then they figured that people would then sort of weed out and go to work and not everyone would go on to a secondary um, education. And that's why that was privately funded. Yep. And they had a different grade structure than we're used to. And sometimes for many times there weren't even grades like we understand grades now. There were just different groupings of ages of kids. Um, So that's another really interesting thing. And, you know, I think one of the things we're going to talk about in this podcast is this idea that um, early, early in our country's founding, there was this idea of compulsory education where the um, early people really felt that education was a both a right but a responsibility for citizenship and so they they passed these things called compulsory education laws 
um, that later, hundreds of years later, came to help people with disabilities have access. Because if it's compulsory, then you should be including everyone. But we weren't, right? So it's really interesting when you think about it from like all the way back to like 1642, they were saying that you people should go to school, children should go to school for some limited period of time to be good citizens. Amazing. And, 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 what and that, it, that oh, there you go. I bet you're jumping in with the first law. <laughs> no, but what I was going to say was that that, that provision of um, education is a right, not a privilege comes directly from that. And underscores all of the uh, um, decisions that turn around education, right? So, um, and I, I'm sure you guys hear me say it all the time when, when you talk about, in, for example, something even as minor as like the disciplinary laws, those are all governed by the due process. And that due process springs from the fact that education is a right, not a privilege. Um, uh, so in addition to that sort of becoming the the inflection point for special ed to launch off of, you know, a gazillion years later, it took, you know, centuries <laughs> to get there. Um, it's also the basis for um, really any statutes or regulations that turn on um educational foundations come from this idea that it's something that you are entitled to. That's really interesting because we hear that word entitlement all the time, right? And it's like, where does that even begin? It's, it's, uh, it's journey in the educational uh, lexicon. And I do think it's really interesting too, because common schools, which was this idea that they had this term that I think comes out of like the English school system, you know, they were really thinking about boys and the education of young men. And it didn't even extend all the time to girls, right? So tax-supported schooling for girls began in 1767. So that's even later in New England. And not all the towns were on board. So some towns declined to educate girls because that just seemed like too much. And I'm guessing that was the same for different states. Yep. And so I'm wondering about the 10th Amendment, which then shifts responsibilities from the federal government to the states. And then, Angela, how does that then apply to the nation, not just Massachusetts? So what I thought um, was interesting in doing a little of this um, research and preparation for um, this conversation uh, <clears throat> was that this this these ideas of of public schools or schooling, um, you know, generated before we even had a country. So Abby had mentioned, you know, about Massachusetts being the first, and um, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, right, was the one that was actually putting forth this idea of. Um, having compulsory education. So that then makes sense when people talk about like the 10th Amendment, um, not my favorite amendment, but a good one, which essentially says that um, if powers have not been specifically delegated to the federal government and not been specifically prohibited 
from the states, then the default is that the states have reserved those rights. So it makes sense here that that's what happened with education initially, because education was being established state by state prior to the Constitution and prior to our the creation of our nation. So um, that's been sort of the reliance on on the Tenth Amendment with regard to the idea that it's a state and it's local. And you can see that now in how the state governs education. And you can see that how that's played out in COVID. Um, Absolutely. Because the local, you know, DESE here in Massachusetts and in other states, the Board of Educations have really, um, you know, left it to the superintendents of the different public school districts to make their decisions. So politics is local, education is is local. And then it took just uh, a series of years, 100 years and decades to figure out that there were certain classes of people that were being excluded. And therefore, the federal government needed to become involved so that there was a uniform um, piece to that, because otherwise, the, the states were, were so far apart in terms of what they were doing to um, work with those classes of people that it had to become a federal issue, which is also also very interesting as it relates to COVID, as we sort of roll into this idea of a federal program for vaccines versus totally, a state right? program. See so. it over and over again. Yeah. And I was thinking about the Common Core, you know, like the Common Core hit the wall of states' rights for education super hard. And that's kind of, I think, why it didn't maybe take root totally, right? Because people were like, no, 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 in my state, I want to do education the way I want to do it. And I apparently, we've learned the Constitution supports that. So, well, right. And then you have this like push and pull between in every venue, not just education, this push and pull between um, federal power and state power. And any lawyer worth their two cents knows that, you know, the state can always do more than the federal government, but they can't do less, right? So we, we revert to the federal government for a bar, and then the state can do more, but they can't do less. Um, and so you see that, you see that all the time in in all sorts of different um, buckets of, of, of society. Well, and I think that's why we see sometimes people moving from state to state, looking for um, good services for their children with special education needs. And I went to graduate school in Arizona and then ended up moving and teaching in Massachusetts. And there was a very big difference in terms of um, the education systems between the two states, especially for people with disabilities. And then we get even more microscopic in Massachusetts, for example, town by town, that two towns that are neighboring towns can have different funding structures and different levels of services um, based on things like property ta tax valuation. So it's really remarkable when you think about it, um, how it has, how, how it's grown such a patchwork um, but I guess the good news is that by, what is it? 1870, all of the states that existed at that time had tax subsidized elementary schools. So at least elementary school had been established by about 1870. And that's kind of an important 
you know, milestone. And I, I wanted to put a shout out, Robin, we were doing some research and Horace Mann came up and I think I remember meeting with you in the Horace Mann elementary school. <laughs> many, many days. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we happened to work in a place that had a school named after Horace Mann, but he became kind of the godfather of American pedagogy at a certain point. And he really also started this idea of consistent preparation for teachers. So just like some of these things are expanding out for kids, the preparation um, defaulted to the states for the licensure and development of standards for teachers and in the professionalization of our field. And so that's another kind of like parallel thing that's happening. Well, and I think it's so interesting because women were just recently the getting the opportunity to go to school and then also have an opportunity to go to secondary school. And they were, for the most part, um, teachers. So it's interesting that there was a whole um, push for specific education for teachers focused on women. Yep. And, you know, it changed right from the the male school teacher from the colonial era, like Ichabod Crane, right? He was a school teacher to to it turned out to end up being all, almost, you know, 75% women in our field right now. Um, so anyway, so we have that development and then we get into the 1800s. Yay, finally, right? Modern days. So Perkins starts right here in Massachusetts backyard, right? 1829. And I thought it was so interesting. Their first title was the New England Asylum for the Blind. I thought that was interesting as well because asylum has such a negative connotation and even though it was a school, I think that still the lens, the negative lens um, that came with people with disabilities, you know, at that time yeah. is part of their education system. So you see the term institution, asylum on many of the, the schools for people with disabilities at that time. Yeah. And, you know, Perkins is very proud of their history. And I think you know, a lot of their development is a, a good blueprint for things we still see in special ed. So they started in someone's home, right? And they started with kids ages six to 20, which is still pretty close to kind of our age span now. And he recruited his friends and family to come and teach, right? Samuel Gridley Howe got his two sisters. So like, it's all the same kind of idea of, you know, people who are interested and people who share from their kind of personal interests. And uh, in his instance, his house, because he had no money and no school building. So um, yeah, Perkins has a pretty cool history. And that's probably, um, you know, a podcast of its own. But yep, so they're in business, they're up and running. And then it looks like by about uh, 1840, 1852, uh, Massachusetts and Rhode Island, our neighbor, have compulsory schooling and people across the country are following suit, which is pretty cool. And then the second school for people with disabilities is the Cotting School. And that's an interesting um, program and has a wonderfully rich history serving people with physical disabilities. And at that time, the physical disabilities were more like polio or industrial disabilities. So people that maybe lost a limb in a farming accident. So at this point, I think um, for the most part, we're not talking about any student with a cognitive disability or what we would call an intellectual disability at this point. Um, but they um, revolutionized 
um, things like transportation. They came to your house and picked you up and you know, that, that became an entitlement, right. Through special education and they had adapted equipment and access. And they also, they started in the basement of a church and they then, um, expanded to a building. Um, so I think that's pretty cool too. And they actually, then after the industrial age, um, you know, became extinct and there were no more industrial accidents and polio also had treatment. So that was extinct. They switched their population for, um, people with uh, muscular dystrophy and other, um, you know, different disabilities, such, such as that. So, yep. There were fewer, uh, threshing accidents from agrarian farming because kids were not farming during their summer vacation. They were like going to camp. So, yep. So it's pretty cool that by the time you get to 1900, there's 34 states that have compulsory schooling laws. Interesting to note, though, that only four of those 34 are in the south southern states of the United States. So that's the beginning of seeing kind of the, the race uh, distinctions in terms of who has access to, to public schooling. And we should definitely talk about that. Um, and it takes till 1918 for all the states to have compulsory schooling laws, which is kind of amazing. And even by then, kids with disabilities were still excluded um, from those laws. I mean, the interesting thing is when you when you do like a deep dive around that time frame into like court cases and whatnot, you see a lot of, um, you know, Supreme Judicial Court, you know, the highest court in the state or in Massachusetts, making determinations that disabled kids don't shouldn't be in school and taking the position of the children who were not otherwise weak of mind or quote unquote troubled, um, that they they need they needed to have their schooling uninterrupted mm-hmm. by the distraction of a of a child who was different. And that was like the, with the stamp, right? The, the stamp of approval by a court. So that that's hard to overcome. It's one of the reasons why it takes such a long time to make these sort of big changes. And that's the same idea with Plessy v. Ferguson with race, right? This idea of um, separate but equal, right? We now know to be like a cop-out because it, it, if it cannot possibly be equal, then being separate doesn't work, but it sounds good, right? It sounds good. Um, and so, you know, sort of the combination of a, a medical misunderstanding of what a person with a disability is and can do, right? So science had to catch up. Um, in addition to um, misinformation um, based on people that look different from the majority, and that includes women. And so the history of all of that together, it just takes a long time to unpack. Um, But the court cases that sort of um, rubber stamped or cemented those views at the time made it that much more of an uphill battle. And then we see how different classes can sort of uh, bootstrap onto previous decisions about other classes, but then have to sort of wage their own battle within the war, right? And we see that with LGBTQ and, you know, all as it all sort of spins out. 
Yeah. And it's funny, Angela, I was thinking we've sat in team meetings where people have like subtly restated some of those same concerns and said things like, well, you know, I don't want my kid in that class if um, the, uh, the student with a disability is really loud or if they're really obviously disabled visually, it will stigmatize my child to be seen near them. And I hear the echoes of those things from like the mass judicial court and from all those things, you just, you know, there's one of those where the person says the teacher was nauseated by the sight of the child and the judge felt that that was a compelling reason. It's like, so people don't speak that offensively now, but there are these weird, subtle things that we hear, you know, in, in school still. And you think, huh, I don't know how much has changed, right? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I think the whole concept of inclusion sprang from that idea. Because even when I was in high school in um, the mid-90s, I think, (laughs) um, and I, you know, I volunteered in the special ed room. Mm -hmm. So that was a room in the high school where all the kids that had um, like certain special needs were there accessing their public education and typical peers like myself could come in and, and work with them, but it was a separate room, right? But that's a real reflection um, of our time. Yeah. And I guess the only other thing I I noticed in, in thinking about all this is that during periods of good times in the American economy, we're much more open hearted, right? So we'll, we'll build more inclusive structures when there's more money around more tax dollars, but certainly during the great depression, for example, you know, there was this great retrenchment from having kids, um, be engaged in even the substantially separate classes that had sprung up by the thirties. And that because there was such a paucity of, you know, tax dollars available for the whole educational system, kids with disabilities really got short shrift. So it's interesting just to see kind of the ebbs and flows when you have a recession or other kind of economic distress, what happens. Um, but let's, we'll shift a little bit to some of the good news, right? So that's like like the history piece. The good news is that all of that um, segregation got people really kind of angry. And most of the people that got angry were parents. And so um, you start to see the rise of parent support groups and then parent advocacy groups. And, you know, I think in special ed, we should think about that and acknowledge the importance of parent advocacy in the history of our field. And that it really is probably without them, our field would not maybe exist or maybe have survived um, to, to the way it is currently, you know? Um, So we see, for example, that in 1933, the first parent support group in Ohio formed and they were um, five mothers of children and they banded together to protest the exclusion of their children from school. So that's pretty cool, right? 1933, that happened, and it was five moms. And I think we see that a lot in the, the National Arc, which used to be the Association of Retarded Citizens. And I think they're trying to do a little rebranding with that terminology. But in a sense, it was a, a homegrown parent organization that became a national movement. And there are arcs across the country and um, they provide advocacy support 
Um, sometimes they are adult service agencies. They do sometimes um, family supports and they are um, a nationally recognized funding source for many families and a resource for people. Um, and it's just amazing. In, in, in each state, it was um, a grassroots organization led by parents. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think that the argument that they were making was that our children can benefit from education. And, and that was like, it was like, you know, beating a dead horse, right? Because what the science was telling them and what the law was telling them, you know, as late as the late 1950s was that the people that have, that are quote unquote mentally deficient or have limited intelligence are unable to reap the benefits of a good education. So we don't need to extend ourselves for them. And so that's really the torch that those, those groups that you guys were talking about carried. Um, they had to do that drumbeat for decades, right? So that people could understand something quite basic as people with special needs, of course, can benefit from education. It seems cuckoo now to even utter those words. Um, but again, it was validated by uh, other portions of society. So it was the uh, the tiger moms and the and the mama bears of the world, and and that really sort of pushed that forward to to shift that tide. Because if not them, who? Absolutely. And I do think that history was moving in other fronts at the same time. So, so they were able to support of some of those other um, groups. Certainly the civil rights movement in the United States in the 50s was very active around issues related to race. And so you can kind of see how the disability rights movement had um, had linkage to that. And then I guess the thing I would ask is, I don't know very much about the Constitution, but it seems like Brown v. Board of Ed is a very big deal, and we take it for granted now, Angela, but it seems like at the time it was probably pretty like groundbreaking that um, the Supreme Court would come out and just basically say, kids have a right to an education. It's like non-negotiable. Yeah. And I mean, it's a stunning case. It remains a stunning case. It's the foundational case for so many things, including education. But you see how it it was generated in um, 1950, 1954, I think. And, um, you know, it didn't work for a long time. <laughs> right. So like the Supreme Court said it and then all the states were like, yeah, go fuck yourself. Right. And you, and you saw that like even as recently as the Democratic primaries. Right. With mm -hmm. Kamala Harris talking about being bust and you hear about it like I'm not from around here, but we have many people that are um, in their in their 50s and 60s that we work with who were part of that desegregation in Boston, which was actually pretty dramatic and traumatic. Um, but I mean, the, the piece of it that's so important is that it, it is what you said, Abby, which is that um, the Supremes basically said, this is the quote that um, we pulled, which says, in these days, it is doubtful that any child may reasonably be expected to succeed in life 
if he is denied the opportunity of an education, such an opportunity where the state has undertaken to provide it, right? So once you do it, (laughs) is a right that must be made available to all on equal terms. Um, And so you couldn't push people aside from that opportunity because they were in a certain class of people. And Brown v. Board, that class of people was um, was race. Um, and that's directly from the Plessy v. Ferguson. That was what it overruled, right? Um, but it extends um, to other classes of people. Um, and it extends to um, the class of being disabled. But I think it certainly required additional fighting for the class of people with disabilities. I don't think that people made the direct correlation that when they said all people, all children, it included people with disabilities at that time. I still think it took, you know, another 20 years until someone, parents, you know, people were really fighting to say, you know, this, this is extended to all people with, who may have different outcomes than the norm. Yeah, I mean, it took another 20 years to desegregate schools. So, and that was right on point. <laughs> so yeah, 100%, 100%. I thought it was so funny when we were like reading about this, this idea that at the time they passed Brown v. Board, there were 17 states that had mandatory segregation, 17, right? Um, and there were like four more that st- had some laws, they just weren't using them. So that's like 21 states. Um, and that two states said they were going to abolish public schools if <laughs> segregation was banned. Like, they were just going to be like, we're not going to provide it to anybody then. All done, right? Right. Taking um, their ball and going home. Remarkable. Remarkable. Right. So, and that did not happen, which is a good thing, right? But obviously, it's a big deal, and it builds just step by step on all of these all of these issues. And um, And I guess that idea of the unalterable characteristic of race got extended in those next 20 years to the unalterable characteristic of disability, which is an interesting conversation. And I don't know if everybody with a disability would consider it an unalterable characteristic. So that's an interesting side note. And then to other categories in the, in the future, right? So anyway, so then we get all the way up into the seventies when we were alive, finally, right? (laughs) And there's two big cases. There's um, two cases in 1972. And here in Massachusetts, Massachusetts was all ahead of the game with a little teeny tiny state. I don't even know if it's a regulation, Angela, or a law, chapter 766, that ended up being the template for some pretty big laws going forward. Right. And that that terminology is still sticks, even though there is no (laughs) chapter. chapter. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, that was the first, that was the, the baseline for um, the federal special education law coming to be right. Um, And sort of it was non, a non categorical, you know, decision based statute that basically said that all children are entitled to a free and appropriate education. And that was then codified in that statute. And that then became the basis for the federal legislation. And it's, it's remained, although it's, you know, grown lots of tentacles, like that's, 
the basis of that idea, right? Is this right to that's FAPE, the right to a free um, and appropriate education. And it did start in, in Massachusetts. And the timing of that was interesting, which I hadn't realized, which is that it was chugging along around the same time as Section 504 was being proposed as it relates to the um, Civil Rights Acts of 1964. So you have, you know, Section 504 coming in, um, basically saying that, you know, using that language, no otherwise qualified handicapped individual um, shall solely, by reason of his handicap, be excluded um, from participation or denied the benefits of, right? So then that's education. It doesn't have to say it, right? And then around that same time, we have um, Chapter 766 in Massachusetts, um, you know, codifying and becoming sort of the baseline for what was going to launch for that with regard to um, a comprehensive federal law for um, students with, with disabilities. Yeah, and I've always thought it's interesting. The timing was really, um, I guess, you know, kind of prescient because, you know, what was happening too in the 70s was, you know, Section 504 comes out of this Rehabilitation Act. And we've always been like, what's up with the Rehabilitation Act? And it's for adults. It's for grownups, you know. It's it's a workplace access kind of construct, not a school-based access. And it took a lot of finagling for people to, like, wrap their brains around Section 504 for schools. But when you think back, like, who was reentering the workforce in the early 70s who needed rehabilitation? It's a lot of, like, Vietnam War returning vets and other people. And so the reality is, like, society was in a great deal of upheaval in the early 70s. And it turned out that people with disabilities were able to use that to kind of springboard to get one big federal law because the states were making all their own little laws, just like Massachusetts started, right? Correct. You get a big mega giant federal law in whatever, 1975. So it takes a couple of years, but the timing's kind of interesting when you look at it. I think that's why they needed to have a separate education law because the first access was through work. Yep. And then it really did need to be spelled out that education is different. Yeah. And actually it's an interesting parallel. Like the, the quote that I just read from Warren um, in board um, Brown v. board. And then, you know, the quote that um, Abby pulled out for us from um, Senator Williams from the, the Education for All Handicapped Children Act in 1975, which is the precursor to the IDEA um, that Ford signed, the language of that is is really parallel. So it says, the denial of the right to education and to equal opportunity within this nation for handicapped children. So Board said, Brown v. Board said all children, and then we had to get more specific, right? So for handicapped children, whether it be outright exclusion from school the failure to provide an education which meets the needs of a single handicapped child or the refusal to recognize the handicapped children's right to grow is a travesty of justice and the denial of equal protection under the law. So they, they have it, right? That's like an amazing quote because, um, thank you for pulling that, Abby. It, it's like an amazing quote because it really encapsulates all the different um, uh, stakeholders that we've been talking about right? And all the different myths 
that existed about why it's not worth educating this class of people. Um, and it, you can hear it when you say it uh, aloud. You can you can hear Brown v. Board echoing in 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 that quote. Um, it's really it's quite it's it's quite interesting. And I think that's where we get effective progress, right? Because here they call out this idea of the handicapped child's right to grow. And so you have suddenly an entitlement to effective progress, which, you know, in general ed, you really don't have an entitlement to effective progress, but you do in special ed. And that is, that's really important. And it's a big, it's a big deal. You and know? I love how individualized it is because the right to grow can mean so many things to so many different yeah. children. And so there was not one standard, which there shouldn't be. Yep. And, 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 and so here, you know, we, we have this folding in of equal protection under the law, right? And so that, that, that sort of like massive statement um, over like, you know, applied to this group of people really empowers um, them to, ha to, to have rights, to have due process, right? It's only through that that, you, that that sort of all falls from that. And then you see in that, in that 1975 law with the terrible acronym, all of these pieces that are now the bedrock of what we do or what you guys do, which is this concept of non-discriminatory testing, procedural due process rights for parents, um, FAPE, um, a document that spells out what you're getting, why you're getting, and how you're getting it, the IEP. So, I mean, it took, again, decades to get it right, um, but those, those concepts, those basic concepts are in that law, that law from 1975. Yep. Well, then yep. I think it really wasn't until <clears throat> the late 80s, early 90s, where you saw the push for public schools to really begin having... Um, legitimized programming for kids with disabilities. I really think it took that long. Um, and once IDEA hit, you know, and spelled out all of those things, Angela, I think that gave the roadmap for schools to say, this is what we can do. And in the past 20 years, we've reauthorized mm -hmm. and keep making it better as we know more and we have more experience um, educating kids with disabilities. Yeah, and you can see the science coming on board too, like brain imaging science in the 90s and stuff, you know, which now is like so much more advanced than it was then. But the idea that they didn't even recognize autism as a category or traumatic brain injury until till the IDEA. I mean, that's remarkable when you think about it. And that transition planning first gets identified in that document, you know, and we think of that now as like a really big part of what we do. Um, but prior to 1990, probably wasn't you know, on the front of people's minds at all. Yeah. And I think um, it's just so interesting because prior to that, it was really just, you have a physical disability or you have a intellectual disability. And that was it. <laughs> Those are, that's some pretty broad strokes, man. Right. Um, and, you know, the fact that, you know, as we know, like even in my, in my time in practicing, uh, which is short compared to this history and, and short compared to the two of you, even autism has been further defined um, 
and terminology has been changed and the spectrum has been more specifically spelled out. Um, and so the, the individualized nature of a person's disability specific to, to them um, is really something that I think is like probably past 20 years. Um, and I also thought it was interesting from the acronym, right? So you go from the acronym of E-A-H-C-A, ed, the Education for All Handicapped Children Act, um, to the IDEA, which is fewer letters, easier to say, but also emphasized this idea of the individual. So we have, now we have a class of people that are entitled to protection, but within that class of people, we have individuals that are entitled to an individualized program. And you see that that language um, you know, flow throughout the changes to the IDEA in 90 and then 2004 and all of the, uh, and the upcoming one that will happen. Um, but that was absent from the original concept of it. It was looking at a class of people. And now we have the individuals within that class that are protected. And then we have the certain types of disabilities that are very specific and important to note because how you educate that person is based on their individual profile. And it's remarkable when you think that that's all happened in the span of our lifetime of school. It's really remarkable. It's gotten that far. And then they revise it again in 1997. And that's where we get the functional behavior assessment and a more nuanced understanding of behavior is communication. And I thought that was really interesting that they talk a lot in that amendment about this idea that independent of your disability category, if behavior is interrupting your education, then you have a further right to assessment in that area and planning and support in that area. And I think that's another big idea because people had linked behavior with people's disability as opposed and to their character, as opposed to it being a function of their frustration or communication needs or something like that. That's a huge shift in education. And and you see that when you look at this as a timeline, it, it really um, informs the conversation because I hadn't realized that it was the 1997 amendments that really focused on behavior. And you can see why behavior is, we're still dealing with it quite a bit. There's still a fair amount of education. I mean, I've seen Robin do it in person. Like there's still a fair amount of education to general ed teachers about kids with disabilities that manifest themselves in their behavior. And I get called into those cases all the time where we're clearing classrooms, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, you know, parents that aren't um, understanding of why that's happening for whatever reason, you know, sort of raise the alarm about that. And it's that, it, it harkens back to the kid that was drooling in 1872. Now we have the kid who's flipping the desk in 2019. So, but that was a delay from 75 to 90. To, so it just, it takes time and work and, um, you know, the dedication of people like you guys. But uh, the timeline is just, I think it's very, it's just really, really, really interesting. And now, you know, we're supposed to have a, another reorg of the IDEA. I was just going to say, we have a new one coming. But I think before we get to the new one, the last um, uh, reauthorization included transition. I just want to say that that then um, puts an emphasis on schools to um, assume that 
people with disabilities are going to be contributing citizens and how will we get them there? And what's the plan for what they do when they leave us in age 22? You know, let's figure out what they like, what they're good at, what their skills are, develop that even further so people with disabilities can go out in the world and, you know, make their mark. And I think that that was um, such an important um, piece of the new law. So um, tell me what you've heard about the new reauthorization. Well, not a lot because it's kind of lost steam because there's been a lot of other things happening. Um, but I think it's, when is it tabled for, Abby? Do you know? I think it's always tabled. That's the bottom line. I think it's like one of those mega laws that takes forever and is um, not necessarily going to happen anytime soon. The um, push right now is this thing about uh, kind of 21st learning skills. And we talked about this in other um, issues, perhaps, but this idea that transition skills should extend to things that um, are about like independence and uh, travel and um, recreation and leisure. And the reality is that education has gotten a little sidetracked by COVID. And I don't think we're spending that much time and energy on those issues right now. So I think that's all to be seen under a new um, Department of Education. Yeah, I mean, I remember prior to the previous administration um, that, and, and Betsy DeVos, like I remember reading a lot of articles about the upcoming possible changes um, and reorg of the IDEA, um, and then it just vanished. Um, but you're right. It is a behemoth. Yeah. Um, and I think I would say that it's working. I think the transition piece, just to pivot back to what Robin was saying, was um, really critical. And school districts have gotten so much better at um, making that a part of what they have to do. But it was this idea that the school is responsible for this child and then the child graduates and there's no nowhere to go next. Because there are not entitlements in adult services. And we say that all the time to our families who are leaving us. When we talk about prioritizing what they're looking for and what services are available, the adult service agencies are very clear with us and very clear with families to say, you know, transportation is not an entitlement. You know, you may get the program you want, but you have to figure out how to get your child to and from that program. Um, and that is just eye-opening. And so it's really important for us to know which organization the family wants to go to so we can work on independent travel skills so they can get there. And the child is safe to get on the bus or to take an Uber um, themselves. Yeah. And I think another interesting piece, some of the percentages and data that that we pulled up was that the dropout rate has over time has decreased. And so then that puts more onus on the school district who are graduating these students. So we're not graduating them just to say, hey, you graduated. Good luck with whatever you do. So like we suddenly, you know, districts had a, a much larger responsibility to, first of all, graduate these kids, but then actually graduate them and prepare them for what's next. And public high school is prepares kids for lots of different opportunities, not just a four-year college. Um, so I think that the, the, the fact that the dropout rate 
was decreasing because of the better work that schools were doing also sort of nicely entwined with the need for transition and then some guidance as to what that transition should should look like. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw in a reauthorization this idea that we would link to community colleges or that community colleges would link to high schools. Like I, I wouldn't be surprised if that's another kind of next step. Um, it looks like this is kind of sad, you guys, but it looks like the way they reauthorize the IDEA is they start with these state level surveys um, that say like, how's it going? You know, it's been X number of years since we've last reauthorized it. They had um, amended it in 97 and then again in 2004. Yeah. And um, there's an article that I read that says like, we're just about to send out the surveys in the fall of um, 2019 into 2020. So we can't wait for those surveys to go out to get everybody's feedback on how the IDEA is going, what changes we should make. And I think that's probably why we haven't heard much because I don't know about you, Robin, but I haven't seen a survey asking me how IDEA is going in the last year. Um, so I think that's the reality. So it's on I'm buried under the COVID emails. I think it is buried. Yeah. But we'll see where we end up. So I think that's a good kind of positive way to look at the whole arc of the field and to just know that some things stay the same and kind of recycle. But also we have actually seen progress for real, not only just like in our lifetime, but certainly over the life of our country. And we're kind of a young country when you think about it. Um, from no school for anybody to school, to school for some folks, to school for kids with disabilities, to good school for kids with disabilities. That's a pretty amazing uh, arc. And when you look at it, um, again, like enjoying looking at at this timeline, I think I said in a previous podcast, and I know I've said it to you guys 1800 times because I'm like a broken record, but teachers don't go into teaching to talk to lawyers. Um but actually, because education is a right and not a privilege, and because it's required court cases to determine who's entitled to that right, i.e. everybody, hence it being a right, um, you know, inherently means that you require the services of um, your friendly community lawyer to help, you know, facilitate um, what's being decided um, in courts across the country. So in that way, it makes a ton of sense, not even just that special ed is so heavily regulated by, you know, what we've been talking about, these statutes and, and regulations, but just the concept of equal protection under the law and the right to an education inherently means people are going to be fighting about it, um, which then requires, um, you know, the likes of me. So it's interesting. You won't be out of a job anytime soon, Angela. No, I know. I know. That's it. that's what I'm saying. Education is a hot field, man. <laughs> it's a hot, it's a hot field. But as you know, for as long as people argue about important things, lawyers lawyers are necessary. So that's okay. <laughs> All right, ladies, let's uh, let's leave it here for tonight, and um, we will be back with our next um, episode. And I hope you guys have a great night. Thanks so much for listening. Good night. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. If you have any questions, you can reach us at ASTAL 
podcast at gmail.com.